Good morning, I am Mike Overstreet. I'm a pastor here at Element 3, and today we are going to continue on in our series that we kicked off last week, God Part 2, which is actually going to lead us through Easter. And in this series, we are walking through the Gospel of Matthew, which if you don't know, if you're new to the Bible, is the first of four what they call good news gospel stories about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we are approaching Matthew's gospel in the season through a unique lens. We are unpacking it as a true sequel story. And we really dove into this last week. We set up what goes into telling a good sequel. Because if we're being honest, most sequels are pretty awful, are they not? And what we really dove into was this idea that a great sequel needs two things. It needs to include and transcend the original story that it's following up. What does that mean? Well, a good sequel includes the key parts of what came before it. It keeps the characters, the world, the theme, the symbols. It doesn't just write a new story that has nothing to do with what it's supposed to be building on. But we also looked at the fact that good sequels also aren't just repeats. They don't just do the same story bigger and more of. No, they also transcend. What that means is that they add new depth. They add new meanings, new insights, deeper layers to the story that's come so far. Include and transcend. Taking the old and building something new out of it. And I believe that for Matthew, as we'll come to see over the course of the series, that is exactly what he believes Jesus' story is all about. See, for Matthew, he sees the story of Jesus as a true sequel story to the central story of the Old Testament. This story we went through last fall in our series, God Part One, the story of the Exodus, the story of God hearing the cries of the Israelites in Egypt in slavery and rescuing them out of there. For what? For his purposes in the world, creating a people that can be a conduit for his healing, his restoration, his goodness in the midst of creation. And what I believe, what I think we're going to find is that that Exodus story is at the heart of what Matthew believes the story of Jesus is all about. Who Jesus is, why he came, why he's important, why we should listen to him. It all comes back to this idea that somehow through Jesus, God is writing his next chapter of rescue and liberation. A new Exodus story coming out of the old Exodus story. A new story of God hearing the cries of his people and coming down to save them. And all I can say, as I mentioned last week, is that this true sequel story of the Exodus, this new Exodus, the story that includes, transcends, and completes this ongoing story of God has utterly redefined how I think about Jesus, how I think about the Bible, and how I find myself in it. It just changes so much what I grew up learning. And that's what I want to invite you on over the next few months. But before we get into this next part, I actually want to start by talking about a different kind of story that has taken over and saturated my life as of late, and that is children's stories. My wife and I have a five-month-old daughter named Adi, 
And as the good parents that we are, I guess, I don't know, we're trying not to be terrible at it, we have taken to reading to her every night before we go to bed. She obviously has no idea what any of this means. She doesn't understand the books at all. In fact, she just tries to eat them. <laughs> but maybe she's on to something that I don't know. Like, maybe that is how you, like, eat the knowledge of the book. I don't know. I've never tried, so I can't make fun of her too much. She might be right. But because we've built this into our routine, I have just become way too familiar with all those fun children's books out there. I've read each of them a million times. Stop buying them for us, please. And in doing so, I have found myself like really fascinated by them because I actually think as someone who, who thinks about things way too deeply and way too much, that they actually do something really interesting when you look at how they work. You see, what I've come to realize is that in a very simple but effective way, these books are meant to extend an invitation to a child about what kind of world they're living in and how they should respond to it. In other words, these books have this really interesting way of distilling major themes about our world into incredibly simple stories, simple but also incredibly memorable and thus incredibly formative. And I brought a couple of Audie's favorites, which isn't even a thing, but I like to think that they're her favorites. They probably just taste the best. And that is, first, Little Llama Baby, Who Are You? Yes, this is my favorite book ever. I'm going to read it to you today in its entirety. No, I'm just kidding. This is a classic. It is a classic because it has all the key hits of kids' stories. Uh, there are animals, obviously. There are rhymes. Little Llama Baby, Who Are You? I'm the Little Llama Baby from Peru. I want to be friends with you. I've read it too much. Um, <laughs> and it has something deep within it. You see, on the surface, this is a very easy to understand story. The llama baby from Peru goes around meeting other animals, introducing itself and forming a posse, pretty much. I don't really have another language for it. And it's, it's very simple, but beneath that simplicity, we find a pattern. See, repeatedly, the llama baby meets these animals different from itself and then responds in a set way. First, it acknowledges what makes the other baby different. It accepts those differences as good, and then it invites them to come alongside it in its journey moving forward. And all sorts of shenanigans take place, right? And this is silly, but think about what it's trying to teach. Think about the seed it plants in the mind of a child about how to navigate their world. What happens when we meet people are diverse? What happens when we meet someone who is other than ourselves? Well, we respond to them by accepting their differences, not immediately judging what's different from them as bad, but being open to them. And we don't try to change them. We greet them and we invite them to come on our journey with us. I mean, this is a story that is meant to teach her how to navigate our world when it comes to the diverse place that it is, and the good that comes out of being open to that. Simple, memorable, formative. Another great example of this, this is my favorite, the little blue truck. Little blue truck is about a truck that generously helps those around it, but then the big bad dump truck, this is the villain of the story, comes along, and it doesn't care who's in its way because it has important things to do, and it almost runs over a bunch of the farm animals that the little blue truck is friends with. But then guess what happens? The big, <laughs> they got it, the dump truck <laughs> 
drives too aggressively and gets stuck in the mud. And the animals don't help it because he was so mean to them. But guess who does? The little blue truck. The little blue truck comes along and it does something interesting. It enters the mud with the dump truck to help the dump truck get out of it. Again, it's incredibly simple. It's silly, but below the simplicity, think about what it is teaching Audie about how to navigate the world. Through this story, it teaches how to respond to broken people with loving kindness. I think it teaches how to enter into painful situations of others, not to control them, not to fix them, but to show them a different way forward. This is the way out. I'm here with you. I think it teaches more than anything what it means to be the love that we want to see in the world. We don't do it by fixing people. We do it by being it and allowing them to learn from what we model. I mean, I think that is powerful in such a simple story. And these may seem silly, but beneath their surface is a powerful reminder of what it takes, I think, to form and shape human beings. You see, these stories in simple ways give children a narrative that invites them to think about themselves, other people, and their world in just a different way. Stories about how to navigate our reality. Stories about how to respond to our world. Stories that when remembered and internalized can shape the child as they leave story time and go out into a world full of complexity and trial. It gives them a filter to remember, to help them guide their way through this place. And this just gets at the truth of humanity. It's a truth that applies to all of us as human beings. The stories we hold about ourselves, others, and our world fundamentally shapes how we exist within it. The story that we run in our head, that we filter ourselves to, it determines how we respond to this reality and people in it. It just does. We are storied people. There's actually a study a few years ago out of Harvard that highlights this powerfully. It looked at what produces substantial life change in human beings across demographics, across cultures. It was just trying to figure out, are there any similar patterns and what motivates someone to actually change their habits, their lifestyle, their thought patterns. And it found two things. The first one is obvious, trauma, deep suffering. We as human beings get shaken up when trauma comes, don't we? And it just breaks us enough to change. So that didn't surprise me. But the other one did. See, the other universally held path to life change was entering into a community religious or secular, that gave a person a new story about their reality. In other words, if you joined a group that just told you a different story about what it means to be human, what it means to live in this world, what it means to find the good life, then that person would begin to change because they would just start filtering everything they do through this new filter of reality. It would start to redefine their lives, other people, their meaning, their purpose. Story and community changes people. It gives us the stories for our lives, and that in and of itself determines who we are in this place.
And I think that's just powerful. And this sets up for this week where we're going to go. You see, we are going to look at how our stories of reality and community intersect with this new Exodus story of Jesus. We're going to look at this section of Matthew found in chapters 3 and 4, where we find the beginning of Jesus' adult ministry. And to get at it, I'm actually going to start at the end of this section. And then we're going to work through the stories that build up to it. Because the end of this section is crucially important to the Gospel of Matthew. This section ends with an announcement from Jesus that will define both the most important themes of Jesus' ministry, according to Matthew, and this story of reality that he invites us into and that he believes will redefine everything that comes through it. It is this announcement that Jesus believes to find defines who he is and what he's here to do. We find it in Matthew chapter 4, 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, this phrase kingdom of heaven is mentioned by Jesus more than anything else in the gospel of Matthew. It is mentioned over 50 times in some way, shape or form, over 28 times. Chapters. For those of you who can count, that's usually 1.5 times per page. Again, more than anything else Jesus talks about, this kingdom of heaven thing is at the center of what he thinks he is doing and who he is. And it actually goes on to inform everything that Jesus says, teaches, does, lives out in the gospel of Matthew. It is tied, all of it, to this kingdom of heaven proclamation that the kingdom of heaven is here. It has arrived through him. And then what does he think happens when people enter that story, when they enter that reality, when they hear whatever this kingdom of heaven thing is, it says that they repent. And again, scary church word. I always think of it as like a college campus. There's a guy with a sign and he has all sorts of things about my life that he doesn't think are great, right? That's generally what we hear, but it's actually a far more powerful and complex word than that. It's this word metanoia in Greek. And what it really means is to change one's mind or to change one's consciousness. In other words, it means to rethink everything about who you are, what your world's about, why you are here, and then to reorient your life around that shift and to experience radical transformation from it. So whatever this is, this kingdom of heaven thing is, Jesus believes that it is central to who he is as a person, to why he came, and he believes that it is crucially important as a transformational proclamation for those that hear it. And since it's so important to Jesus, to who he is, to what he's doing, I want to take today to begin by unpacking what this announcement means. And then we're going to go back through the stories that lead up to it to see what they teach us about what Jesus thinks is taking place. So what is the kingdom of heaven? Well, let's start with the first word, kingdom. Because if you ever read your Bible, you are going to see the word king and kingdom used over and over and over again. It is central to the biblical story, this theme of kingdom. And you'll actually find that the biblical story begins with it at its forefront. You see, the Bible begins with this idea that the world and humanity are created fully existing within God's kingdom, 
or the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Well, just this image that all things in their beginning were created in a reality where God was fully king over them, where God fully reigns over them, a reality where God's good intentions for what he's made are fully realized. Make sense? However, as you were, if you were here last week, you know that the story doesn't end there. The biblical story includes human rebellion. Humanity rebels and they go against God. They try to get out from under him. They try to become their own king in the world. They want to establish their own rule and reign separate from the one who made them. And what the Bible does is it understands this decision as being an attempt by human beings to establish and create our own competing kingdoms in the world. Kingdoms that are in opposition to God because they're defined by us rating, us determining right for wrong, us using other people, using our world, using whatever we can to get ahead for our own purposes. Thus, for the Bible, the human kingdoms of the world are the places that human beings set up in opposition to the rule and reign of God, the kingdom of heaven. So, with this in mind, the Bible, the story of God's rescue for creation is understood progressively as you move along as God seeking to bring back all things under his rule and reign again. The goal of the Bible is for God to become king, reigning over his world once more, calling and leading human beings back to what he intended for them. All things made right with all of us living in his kingdom once again, not somewhere else realized here. And as we also covered last week, who were the first people to be a part of this kingdom breaking into our world reality, this kingdom of God where God reigns over a small group of people in the Bible? Does anyone remember the nation of Israel? Yeah, the Exodus story. God rescues the Israelites, the small nation of people from slavery in Egypt to become a conduit for his purposes. The first community of human beings once again called to live under God's reign, the kingship of God, a people that will draw the world back to the kingdom of heaven again, living under God as king with how they exist in the world. But as we learned last week, Israel, pass or fail at this calling. Fail. fail. Israel falls short. They reject God as king. They seek to build their own kingdom, and they end up in this thing called exile, taken out of the promised land, and the Old Testament ends with God's people longing for God's kingdom to arrive. This moment in the future when God would reclaim his good world by becoming king over it again. So with that kingdom expectation in mind, how radical do you think it is that Jesus shows up and says, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is here through me. You think if you were a first century Jewish person, that might have been like, whoa, <laughs> right? This is the moment they've been waiting for, this announcement, and it's come according to this Jesus character. And now we can turn to the stories that lead up to it. Chapter three, we begin. We read that Jesus comes into the wilderness, into the desert, and goes through this thing called baptism, 
which is being led by this prophetic character named John the Baptist, who is essentially calling Israel to renew itself to its original purpose as a light to the world. So Jesus associates himself with that movement in the desert, and he comes to be baptized. And we pick up in Matthew 3.16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened up, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So we have this story about Jesus passing through the waters of baptism. He has an identity spoken over him by God's spirit. You are my son whom I love, or better translated, my beloved son. And then he is led by the spirit where? The wilderness, where he is what? Tempted or tested. And this word actually is better understood as testing because it conveys testing the truth of somebody. So for example, if you were taking a class in high school and you told me you knew the information and I'm a teacher who doesn't believe you, what would I do? I would put that knowledge to the test for you to prove it to me. And that's what Jesus is going through. We're reading that he's being led into the wilderness to be put to the test. Now stop, and I'm going to do this a lot in this series. Reflect on the movement here. Matthew expects this movement to bring a story immediately to the mind of his audience. Does anyone else know a story in the Old Testament that follows this movement? The Exodus. Come on, guys. It's going to be pretty easy. It's like in Bible class where we're like, it's Jesus. The Exodus story. The Exodus story. The story where Israel is formed as a nation that God calls what? His son who he leads out of slavery in Egypt through the waters of the what? The Red Sea. So he passes them through the waters. And where does he lead them to? The promised land. But what does he go to first? The wilderness, the place of what in the ancient world? Testing. Israel is led through the waters into the wilderness where they are tested in their faithfulness, their calling and their trust in God as their king. And again, how does Israel do, pass or fail? They fail. If you've read the Exodus story in the wilderness, they face hunger, they face thirst, they face exhaustion, fear, and they respond to each of these circumstances by distrusting God, rebelling against God, and even trying to go back to slavery in Egypt because they just don't want to be around this God. In the wilderness... Their willingness to live under God as king is tested and the son of God fails in both identity and calling. And they end up wandering the wilderness for how long? 40 years. So think about what Matthew is saying here. The beloved son of God once again is being led into the wilderness, the place of testing, not for 40 years, but for 40 days. And in the wilderness, he will be tested and his identity and calling in Matthew is doing something profound. He is setting up Jesus as the new representative of God's people of Israel, their king, coming to the test that they failed. And this new son will be tested by the ultimate tester. We read in the verse that it says the devil, but I think our modern imagination and modern art history really messes this up because we think of like a scaly reptile or a gargoyle or a horns and pitchforks, right? That's not what it is in the Bible. 
In the Bible, the term Satan or the devil is a title, not a personal name. It means the opponent or the accuser, or in this case, the tester. It is the personification of true spiritual evil in our world, more of a force than anything else that is just an opposition to all that God wants, life, beauty, love, hope, goodness. It is what opposes the kingdom of God. And it comes to Jesus, the new son in the wilderness where it's going to test his identity, his faithfulness, his purpose. And Matthew wants you to hold on to one question as we go through this next part. How will this new son do at staying true to his calling, at staying faithful to his purposes of being a conduit for God's healing in the world, at trusting God as his king? How's he gonna do? Because the last son didn't do too great. So let's find out. Beginning in Matthew 4, 3, we find three separate tests. And the first two are actually the same pattern. They are meant to test Jesus's identity and his loyalty to the Father. We read that the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put your Lord, your God to the test. So these first two tests begin with the statement, if you really are the son of God, blank. Now, Think back to the story we just read before this, Jesus' baptism. Is Jesus the beloved son of God? Yes, we know that already. So what is being tested here? And I think this is powerful stuff. First, the tester points to Jesus' circumstances as a reason for Jesus to doubt his God-spoken identity as the beloved. Jesus is starving in the wilderness, the middle of nowhere, and the tester says, does that really sound like your circumstances prove that God loves you? Do you think someone that God loves would be starving in the desert? <laughs> no. Look at where you are, Jesus. Are you really sure that you're the beloved son of God? I mean, this is what is going on here. It's the circumstances leading Jesus or testing Jesus to see if he'll undermine his belief in the identity of the beloved that was given to him. And it's a familiar test because if you know your Exodus story, we know that there's a story of Israel getting hungry in the desert. And how do they do at staying true to believing that God is going to provide for them? Fail. Not great. <laughs> they distrust God. They rebel. They actually want to go back in the story. And how does Jesus respond? He quotes this passage from the Old Testament from Deuteronomy that actually retells the story of Israel's failed test in the wilderness. And he says, man does not live on bread alone, but on the word that comes from God. He uses Israel's story to say that he will be faithful where they failed because he knows the identity spoken over him and he knows the character of who his God is. He is a God that despite his circumstances has spoken truth that he is beloved and he will care for him in his time. In fact, his circumstances do not undermine the word spoken over him. So he trusts the will of the Father. 
Kabam! Right? It's like a kung fu movie. Devil comes, get him right back. First test passed. So we go to the second test. Comes at him again, same identity questioning, but from a different angle. He takes Jesus in a vision to the highest point of the temple, the place where God is believed to dwell directly with the Israelites. And he says, if you really are the son of God, then prove it. Throw yourself off the temple and God will send his angels to rescue you if he really does love you so much. Same question of identity, but more subtle in the tactic this time. What's going on? This time the tester comes at him with scripture. He says this song, he quotes from this song about God's people trusting God for deliverance in the midst of hardship. And he twists it. He says, don't just trust God about your identity of belovedness. God promises blessings for those who he loves. Thus, you should make God prove that it's true. Make him save your life. Make, force God's hand. Make him prove that if he loves you so much, he's going to save you. Which, if you think about it, is this thing that we as human beings often do, which is we turn God into a wish fulfillment genie. We say, God, if you really love us, then change what I want into what I want it to be. Which puts God in our service and not the other way around, doesn't it? So he says, prove it, God, make him prove it. And again, a familiar failed test in Israel's wilderness story over and over again, they put God to the test. They say, if you really are faithful to us, then give us what we want when we want it right now. And Jesus, kapow, quotes from that story. Do not put the Lord, your God, to the test. He says, I will remain faithful to God's will for my life. And he may call me to lay my life down at some point, but it will be in his time and for his purposes and not a second before. I will trust his love for me. And when he calls me to give my life, I will do it. But not because you've told me to and not because I want to prove that he is who he says he is. Test passed. And then we get to the third and final test and notice that this time the strategy changes. We read in verse eight, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came to attend him. So the tester uses vision and he lays out what before Jesus? the kingdoms of the world. And he offers them to Jesus now if you'll just follow him and worship him. So he doesn't question Jesus's identity. Obviously it knows now that Jesus, the son of God and the God or God's son will one day become the king over this world. No, this time it's testing how Jesus will fulfill his calling. Think about it. He's saying, what kind of king will you be, Jesus? And what kind of kingdom will you build? I mean, this is the most insidious test of all. I believe that what's going on here is he's testing Jesus. Will you forfeit the road ahead of you, the road of suffering for the good of others, the road of sacrifice by building another kingdom just like all the other kingdoms of humanity that have come before? Kingdoms of might make right. Kingdoms of power. Kingdoms of I will take what I want and I don't care who gets in my way. The kingdom of this world? Or will he stay true to God's different, harder kingdom way? And check this out. 
Each time previously, Jesus calmly responded with scripture, right? But this time, Jesus responds differently. We see deep emotion. He gets mad. What does he say first? Get away from me, Satan. You get out of here. Jesus sees this as the ultimate test of who he is and what he came to do. This test that human beings have quite frankly failed over and over and over again. This test of what kind of kingdom will we be a part of building? The test of whether we will be a part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven here. And Jesus is the king that remains faithful to that calling. He is the king that remains faithful to the kingdom of heaven. He remains faithful to being one of self-sacrificial love. He remains faithful to building a kingdom of peace, of belovedness, of mercy, of liberation, of trust. This is what Matthew sees in Jesus through this story. Jesus having passed the testing of the wilderness that we have failed enters the world as the true representative of a new Israel and a new humanity, the faithful son who is faithful to one kingdom, the son who defeated evil by refusing to become like it in his fight against it, the son who could finally do what humanity was always meant to do, announced to God's good world, the kingdom of heaven is here through me, the one who has come to make things right. A victory that says decisively that in the new Exodus story, evil will not have the final word on God's good world because it could not get the final word on God's good son. In this new Exodus story, we are going to find the kingdom of heaven crashing into our reality wherever we find the son who announced it. And this is actually where I want to land today. Because Jesus doesn't just announce that this kingdom is here. What happens over the rest of chapter 4 and really over the rest of the gospel story of Matthew is powerful. He announces the kingdom of God is here and available. And then what does he do? He begins inviting people into that story of reality. He begins inviting human beings to come live under the reign and the rule and the kingdom of God here, now, and available. The story of the kingdom of God here and now, the story of victory over evil, the story of God's rescue taking place through him, the story of God's new exodus. He says, it's here, come live in this story as your own story. He starts with the first disciples. You'll read it right after he announces it. He calls those, you probably heard this story. He calls the fishermen to leave their nets and to come and follow him, to give away all that they have to be a part of building a new kingdom in the world. And they do. And then he calls 12 total disciples. How many tribes of Israel are there? 12. He restarts the people of God around himself as a new community centered around the true king and the true kingdom. And through this new community, living in the kingdom, he begins calling everyone into it, especially, first and foremost, the people that we don't want to be there. He begins calling the sick, the broken, the persecuted, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the lost, the worst of the worst, those we would call sinners. Those are the ones who get the invitation to live in the kingdom of heaven here and now first. 
And what happens for the rest of Matthew's gospel story of Jesus when people come into contact with the kingdom of heaven through King Jesus and his kingdom community, they find one thing, healing. Those who come into contact with the king of kings find healing. He forms a community with a story that leads all who enters it to reorient their entire lives around it. And through that reorientation, they begin to grow, to heal, to change, to be made new. For Jesus, this is what the kingdom of heaven brings into our world. It gives people longing for newness, healing, restoration, love, a new story of their reality that just changes everything. A new story of victory for testing when it comes. A new story of identity. You are the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. So says your God. A story of a new Exodus kingdom that we are invited into through the faithful love of God found in the beloved son who passed the test. The story that heals, saves, and rescues what's gone wrong. And I want to close by just fully grounding the story in reality. Because on one hand, you come and you hear sermons like this, and it gives you a lot of good theology that you, quite frankly, probably don't care about. Like, I'm the only one in the room who cares about King Jesus and the new Israel and passing the test of the wilderness. It's good theology. But at the same time, this idea of Jesus is victorious, Jesus is a true son, is meant to speak to our humanity. This is a story that's meant to talk to us about what it means to be a human living in a world that so often puts our humanity to the test, does it not? I mean, this is a story that I think Jesus believes he is inviting us into because he knows that it's going to be our story one day. As disciples and as a community living under God's rule and reign and kingdom, he knows that we will face the test of who we are. I think that many of you don't need me to convince you of that. You are facing circumstances that truly test your identity as God's children. You are in place that feels like the wilderness. Are you not? You are passing through the very circumstances that make that identity of being God's beloved feel like it just couldn't possibly be true, not for someone like you. For some, it is the wilderness of loss, grief, addiction, Divorce, illness, mistakes, failures, deep suffering, the circumstances of this life that just break us. For others, it's the temptation of apathy. You just feel stuck and you tell yourself that this story of God's kingdom renewing all who come into contact with it must just be for someone else because it wouldn't be for someone like me. That crushing feeling that things are the way they are and there is no hope for something different, new, or better crashing into your world. For others, it may be the ultimate test of calling and purpose, the test of what kingdom you are living in and building, of whether or not you will be the faithful conduit of a kingdom bigger than this world's and a kingdom bigger than your own. It is the test of living this world of resentment Versus forgiveness, judgment versus mercy, greed versus generosity, might makes right versus humble sacrifice, love versus hate, the kingdom of heaven versus my own kingdom. And in these places, the voices of testing just come at us. Am I the only one? 
the tapes in our head that play on their own and we just can't make them stop. The tapes that tell you the story isn't for you, that you have no value, that you are worthless, that you are alone, that you're stuck, and this is it. This is all you have to hope for in this miserable life. But I believe that Jesus gives us his story to rely on in those moments of testing, to navigate our world with it, to be transformed by it. He passed the test to give us his story, his identity of belovedness, his calling as a conduit for a bigger kingdom to invite us fully to live in the kingdom of heaven now. So, as disciples who live under a God who is good and a king who passed the test, what do we do in those testings? When those voices that test us to stay where we're at, no matter how painful it is and how lost we feel, when those voices come that question our belovedness and our worth as a human being or the worth of other human beings who are different than us, what do we do when the test comes that says, go a different way? Be a part of your own kingdom. What do we do? Well, we look to the son who passed through the waters, who succeeded in the testing on our behalf that we so often failed, who declared victory and freedom for us. We take his story as our own. We remember our identity that we are beloved children of God and nothing can take that from us and which kingdom we live in. And we say to those voices, you get out of here. You get out of here. You have no power over me. You do not get to say who I am. You do not get the last word on my life because in God's Exodus story, you did not get the last word on his good world. You get out of here. This is the story of the kingdom of heaven and the invitation, the announcement is that it's here and now. And it can be your story too. If you just pass through the waters and come to the king. That's my story. And I invite you to come find it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.